Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. So today, the format's going to change just a little bit. Um, Ordinarily, if you've been listening along, um, welcome back. And you will know that up until this point, I have offered guest episodes and episodes in where I talk to a particular psychologically um, linked topic. But today, I'm going to be doing an Ask Me Anything podcast. Now, some of you may even follow me on my social media accounts, either over on Instagram or Facebook, and you might have seen that earlier on this year, I would ask people to submit their questions to me on a Friday, and I would hop onto my stories and answer them on there. And it's such a lovely way to connect with people, because I always got really interesting and curious questions and I just love doing that. So I thought, you know what, why not hop onto the podcast and do something similar? So over the last week, I've been asking you to submit your questions and I've got a whole load which I've had to whittle down. So I'm going to be um, doing that today. So welcome back if you have been listening along to the first 10 episodes of the podcast. And if you're new here, um, it's so great to have you. I continue to be blown away with the support um, that I'm receiving and the impact that this is having um, and I'm so grateful to all of you for being here. Now what's really fantastic about the questions that have been submitted and it's helpful to me sort of looking at an overview of what it is that I offer within my business and through my social media accounts but all of the questions have you know broadly fit into categories around grief and loss and the work that I do around bereavement. Um, trauma and the content that I offer out on trauma and then the last questions that I will cover are around more broadly psychological information and a little bit just um, about me and and linked to me and what my plans are. So I'm excited and I can't wait um, to get started on this. So okay let's let's just dive straight in and the first section that we're going to cover are questions that people asked about grief. So question number one was, how did you manage to hold on to hope when you experienced something so difficult? So just in case anyone isn't aware of my situation, I lost my husband in 2018 very suddenly. He died um, within hours of taking ill in our home and it was a really difficult, as you can imagine, time. And so that what a great question to ask because 
Hope is such an important part of our psychological well-being, I think. And again, something that's not spoken about enough. Um, I actually looked at hopelessness as a factor within my um, undergraduate dissertation and hopelessness is such a key component. And okay, let me think about it. So how did I hold on to hope? Well, what I would say about that is firstly, I like to think of myself generally as a fairly positive person. And look, that's not all the time, right? We all have good days and bad days, but overall, I tend to be a glass half full kind of person. But when something so difficult and so challenging comes along, it is challenging to, you know, remain um, hopeful for the future. Um, I've spoken about this in my episode, Grief, Trauma and Me. Um, But initially, in those early weeks and days, it was just like survival mode. Um, And I just had to get through each day and each hour of the day. And that was, you know, if I got to the end of a day, it was a win, right? It was it was a real win. And I had to look at it that way at that time. Because actually, in the early stages, it was too difficult to look far ahead and wonder, what will life hold for me? You know, if I think about hope broadly um, and reflect on my experiences then, I do remember having thoughts around you know, what will my life look like in the future? Will I ever be happy again? Will I be alone for the rest of my life now that I've lost my husband? Will I, you know, only have my kids to look after? And what's interesting about that is, um, I think that part of my holding on to hope um, was about my kids I needed to hold on to hope for them and that was that was where it began for me because it was hugely important to me as their mum that they didn't lose hope and I had to show them that I held hope for them and so that's where it began for me and as time went on I then began to broaden my views around what life could look for me in the future you know that I knew fairly early on for example that I didn't want to be alone for the rest of my life and that that wouldn't be right for me, that I would want to be able to trust in the fact that I would meet someone again and that I could be happy. So yeah, I I hope that answers that. Initially, my children gave me hope and then I started to allow myself to think about what life would, would become. Okay. Um, question number two, what have you learned about yourself as a result of your loss? And I think I've touched on this before in the podcast, but I am someone who has, I think, been fairly independent um, in my life. And like, I think that's probably been present even from a young child. Um, I remember my mum telling me, a story about being four and deciding that I was leaving home one day and packing like my little, I still remember it, a little white dancing case with some clothes and stomping off to the bottom of the street. And apparently I kind of stayed there (laughs) for the majority of the day. Um, And so I think, you know, I've, I've probably been that type of 
kid and then became that type of adult where I've been fairly independent and as a result of that I've really struggled to accept help and what I learned incredibly quickly after Matty died was that if I was going to survive this I was going to have to get over that you know so even those first few days my friends were there his friends were there my family people were taking the kids for me I had things that I had to attend to and do and I literally just couldn't have done it without people helping me and so that independence might have been useful to me in certain circumstances but at that time it was not and I needed to get very good at accepting help and not beating myself up about that and if I can take that just one step along um, and this is how I would work with my clients too to think about um, this for them is that independence and not being able to ask for help didn't just come from nowhere. So if I can put it simply, somewhere along the line, I developed what I would say was a flawed belief that asking for help meant that I, not that I was a failure, but that I wasn't coping. I think that feels right for me that if I ask for help, it means I'm not coping. And I didn't want to appear like I wasn't coping, either in my life before Matty's death or after. And actually, that became almost even more pronounced after his death because there was a feeling of um, scrutiny and that people were watching me like a hawk to make sure that I actually was managing um, and that they didn't need to sort of worry about me. Um, And I think people do this a lot you know we we develop these beliefs in our childhood and psychologists would talk about them as core beliefs so you might not even be aware that they're there and they sort of exist at an unconscious or implicit level and it's not until big situations like what came along happened to me that I became so aware of how unhelpful that could be for me if I let that be the predominant way that I would manage things um so yeah, so I that's a work in progress for me. I still struggle to ask for help now. Um, but it's something that you I think you have to do in your life um to, to be successful, to manage life well and to be happy. Okay, right. Next question. What strategies have you used to manage your emotions in grief? I love this one because this is where my business was born. So I had started the process of um, setting up my private practice before Matty's death. And I remember um, he worked away and when he was working away, I was messaging him back and forward and talking about business names and things like that. And so it was only a matter of months before he died that I'd set the business up fully. And I was really excited about it. Then he died and things obviously took a bit of a back seat. But in my grief, I found writing. And some of you may have heard me speak about this before, but initially I wrote to remember things because my memory was really difficult at that stage. Like I felt like I was um, in a bit of a brain fog and... Um, 
and I've subsequently heard many clients talk about that in grief it's very difficult to sort of hold on to information in fact one of the things that really um is so fascinating to me how your brain operates so um in the same year that Matty died and um just after um my goddaughter was born my um niece was born and another niece was born in fairly quick succession three girls and what's been so interesting to me is my um, ability to um, memorize their birthdays is just not there like I've had to be really intentional about remembering their birthdays and putting it into calendars and things like that because of not essentially my brain did not lay down the memory of the day that those little babies were born And I think that's because I was in such a fog of dealing with the present moment. It was very difficult for memories to be laid down effectively. So initially I used writing to um, help with my memory and to remember the events actually of what happened so that one day I could tell my kids um, with a degree of certainty about the way that things had actually happened. And then I started writing in a more um, therapeutic way, I guess. And I remember sharing that writing with some of my very best um, friends and family um, privately and saying, like, what do you think of this? Do you think this might help other people? Because what I found was that being able to sit down for an hour and pour out some of my emotions onto a page and share some of my anger and frustration and sadness was just hugely cathartic. And, you know, I'd, I'd known about therapeutic writing and I've used it in the past with clients, but I just really felt like this would be beneficial for other people. And so I started tentatively sharing that. And coming back to how that linked to the business, I used my business page as a way to get that writing out there. And the impact was um, immediately available for me to see. People were so kind. They were, um, you know, in in their words to me about what I'd been through, but also um, helping me to understand that my words were potentially useful for other people to help put words to their grief and what they'd been through in their own lives. And the other thing about writing and why I love it as a therapeutic tool is that it allows people to access their emotions when talking is too difficult. So this is something that I um, have talked to before, but not everyone is in a place for talking therapy or are ready for talking therapy. And so writing for me bridge that gap at the point where I didn't necessarily want to talk about it to everyone that I met but I was happy to write it down and then share it in a way that felt less um, intrusive or difficult and so yeah I think writing is a very powerful tool uh, to manage any emotions um, that you're going through and I, I often ask my clients to just get themselves a notebook and make sure that they jot anything down week to week between therapy sessions that comes up for them um, and journaling, um, you know, what, what's going on for them. And then I guess, broadly speaking, if I think about what strategies I've used to manage my emotions, I think what both writing, talking, sharing things of myself 
um, is all about is leaning into vulnerability. So it wasn't easy for me to share um, what I was writing, but it was helpful. And I think vulnerability is like that, right? That being vulnerable, um, of especially at our most difficult times with our most difficult experiences can be so hard. And yet the return on that um, is tenfold. And it's such a great privilege to work with people in therapy because people come to me at their most vulnerable. That's where I get them and that's where I have to meet them. And my goal is to get them to um, be able to be as vulnerable as they can, to allow the emotions to come, to process, to move through and to develop new understanding of what has happened to them. Um, yeah, so I hope that, I hope that um, explains that question. Okay, question four. This is an amazing question and I've actually wondered about whether I should do a full episode on this. But the question is, how do I help my child who is grieving but refuses to accept help or talk to anyone? Okay, I've got a few things to say about this one, so let me just collect my thoughts. Um, Right, the first thing that I want to say about this is it depends on the age of the child. And so I have worked with parents who will beat themselves up about how they've told their child, when they told their child, the words that they use, what they said. And I get it, I understand, because you want to, I'm doing quotation marks here, get it right. But I, I don't think there's necessarily a prescriptive way to do this or a way to get it right. Um, but there are some principles that we can think about. So if I just reflect on my experience, so my daughter was five years old, my twins were two years old. And even at five, that was very difficult for my little girl to really fully understand what that was all about. Of course, she understood um, what death was to some degree. However, what we know about children's development is that something called object permanence doesn't really fully land with children until they're sort of at that six, seven, eight years of age, depending. Okay, so it's obviously, um, you know, individually dependent. Um, so my daughter could understand a bit more and it was important that she be told in a, in a different way to my boys who were just two who really were not going to be able to process much of what I told them and so the way that they were told was more um a drip feed sort of over time you know um and that's hard because my boys are the two that I worry about I feel like I told my daughter in a very direct no-nonsense way and then helped her with what that what came up for her and continue to do so whereas with my boys I feel it's been this sort of gradual evolvement of knowledge to the point where they're now just now at six moving into a phase of their grief reaction that suggests to me that they understand the permanence of their dad's death and that he will not be coming back so that's the first thing to, t- to see is dependent on your child and their level of maturity and what they will understand and the best person to know that is you so don't doubt yourself um, you will know what feels right I think and if you're looking for any reassurance on that you can absolutely you know reach out and talk to other people who've been through that experience or indeed talk to 
a therapist or a counsellor or someone who might be able to offer some consultation in that area for you. Okay, the next thing I want to say is that there is no blueprint for how to grieve. And I think I said in my previous episode, like you get a, a view really quickly on that other people think that there is a way to grieve properly or the right way and there just isn't. And, you know, we're adults and we don't know what we're doing. We're just sort of, you know, moving from day to day and hoping that we survive it all. And so if we're struggling with it, of course our children don't know how to do it um, or what to do. And so what I would say about that is, as a parent, I think if they are struggling to talk about it or accept help, I think what we need to do first and foremost is remember that every day, our children are watching us and they are observing us and what we are doing, how we are coping. And so for me, I think there's something there in terms of if they don't know how to do it or how to um, get the help or support at this point, it's because they've never been shown how, because they've never experienced grief. And so we can show them, we can model to them how to go about it. And let me just also say when I say that, What I mean is they can see us cry and know that that's okay. They can see us laugh and know that it's okay to be joyful after a death too. And I think kids sometimes get these implicit messages about what they should and shouldn't do and they become a bit paralysed and stuck because they don't want to appear that they're happy when, say, a parent or someone that they love has died and so they you know, they'll they'll stifle their emotional responses that way or no one else around them is crying or being sad anymore. So they think, okay, well, that's over. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. And I think if we can just be open and not hide our grief away from them, that's probably one of the best things that you will ever do. Um, Okay, the other point I wanted to make was just to try and be present for them. Let them know that you're there and keep giving them the message that when they are ready you will be present for them so even if it's not now even if it's next week or six months or a year from now you will be there for them when they feel ready to address it and often often that's as helpful as anything there's a study in psychology that's relevant here and I just wanted to kind of share it I I can't remember um, who the researchers are but um, there's this idea that when people have had like a, a stay in the hospital because of psychological issues, um, if you split them into two groups, this, this research paper split them into two groups and one group were just basically told, right, that's you, off you go on your way and you'll, you know, you'll be fine now, off you go. And the second group were um, put back out of the hospital and told you have... A number of sessions that you can at any point if you feel like you're struggling you can come back and you can seek additional support from us you can just come back the way so one group had support um offered when they went back out and one group didn't now let me ask you which group do you think it was that came back in and asked for support have a think about it (laughs) so what actually happened was The group who were offered the support never really came back and got it. Whereas the people who went out with no support 
ended up in crisis and had to then present back to services. And so for a second, I just want you to imagine that what you're doing in these instances with your children is you're saying to them, I am here for you and the support is there when you're ready. And that in and of itself might actually prevent them ever getting to that crisis point because they know it's available to them when they require it. And I think we just have to trust our kids that they know what they need when they need it, um, if we've done all those things. Okay. Um, And then the last point I wanted to make on this one was, um, I think it's good to offer different options to our kids around support. So they might find it really difficult to talk to us, but they potentially would speak to another trusted adult. So if I think about my own daughter, um, I have a very good friend who my daughter, um, you know, has an amazing relationship with. Um, We've known her for a very long time. um, And I checked with that person and she was more than happy that if my daughter ever wanted to speak to her, not me, about what had gone on, then she could do that. Um, And I've also offered, um, you know, additional support around if she ever feels like she wants to speak to a counsellor or um, like a grief counsellor, then she can do that too. And so it just gives our kids options um, because we don't, you know, they might be different to us in terms of how they best access support. So... Yeah, just, just give them that breadth of possibility and something might just click with one area um, of support that doesn't with another. Okay, so those are the questions around grief. I hope that's been helpful for people to hear a little bit about. Um, and yeah, like give me some feedback if anyone thinks it would be helpful to have an episode on specifically how to help our children around grieving because it is one that I've thought about a lot. Okay, now... The next questions sit within the space of trauma and again some brilliant questions so I'm looking forward to to explaining these ones for you. Okay so question number five was how do you keep yourself safe or sane when listening to others trauma? So this is a brilliant question and I've been asked it before. Um, So I think the first thing is knowing my limitations. So you know at the end of the day, I am a human being who has also gone through her own stuff. And sometimes um, my clients' experiences may trigger my own, particularly around grief, actually. So I'm quite intentional about the number of clients that I see who are grieving a loss because I wouldn't have a full caseload of that. It just wouldn't be um, helpful to anybody. So I think that's the first thing, knowing my limitations. Um, And the other part of it is, um, as a psychologist, um, part of my um, profession and my professional standards is having supervision around the work that I do. And so I have my own supervisor who um, I will go to and talk through cases um, confidentially um, and get ideas about if I'm stuck with my practice or if I'm feeling a certain way about a client's experiences um, and that's really important I think for anybody who's in the wellness space and that includes coaches and what else keeps me safe and sane? Um, I think just being really aware of myself and aware of um, where I'm at myself and what self-care looks like to me so I'll give you an example last week um, I've gone through a couple of weeks of like um, I wasn't very well my kids weren't very well 
there was lots of work on and I just had to um, batten down the hatches and put a few things on hold um, because I couldn't I couldn't you know meet that need um, and sometimes we just need to be really aware of our needs and do what we need to do um, and that's difficult for me <laughs> because I don't want to let people down um, but yeah I think knowing your limitations having some supervision around what you're doing and being aware of your own needs and how to meet them Okay, question six, how to manage relational trauma with a parent without upsetting the status quo? Right, this is a brilliant question and one that I need to preface a little bit with um, what I think relational trauma is. So relational trauma, so well first of all let me start with, um, I think as a society we've been conditioned into believing that trauma are these big T, what you'll hear some psychologists or therapists, usually American-based um, therapists will talk about big T trauma. Um, and it's this idea that it's, it's the really big things like, um, you know, abuse of some kind, sexual neglect, um, verbal abuse, domestic violence, those types of like big T events. Or indeed, a... Uh, um, trauma that's you know like a one-off event a bit like um, my husband's death and I think society's conditioned us into believing that that's all trauma is and I'm not buying it I've not bought it for a very long time and part of why I do the work around trauma is to help educate people that trauma is not just these big t events but what we could term as small t trauma um, and again, I don't really like the terminology around big T and small T, but let me tell you what I believe um, relational trauma is. And it's rather than those, you know, really um, long term abuses that happen um, that are incredibly damaging to people. This is the sort of day to day trauma that exists within our relationships with our early caregivers usually though not always um where the patterns that we've got into in our relationships have been unhelpful in some way so I often give the example of you know a very critical parent and we've internalized self-criticism and that relational trauma that we've um experienced and then internalized shapes up how we then um interact with the world and those around us as an adult so that that's the first bit to say about what I believe relational trauma is now how to manage relational trauma with a parent without upsetting the status quo is hard right it's really difficult because often these types of relational patterns with our parents also existed um, where there may have also been lots of love and support at other times and our parents, we, we understand sort of implicitly that our parents are doing the best that they know how with the resources that they have at their disposal and what they understand about, you know, parenting and how to raise children and all those kind of things. Um, and so often my clients feel very guilty about this idea of um, calling out any of the behaviours that they find difficult in their here and now uh, with their um caregivers from childhood and you know I think I think this has got to be um well thought out I never tell my clients what to do uh with their relationships 
we might work through some things and understand it and from that there might be suggestions as to what might be helpful and certainly one of the things that I am keen to talk about are boundaries um, but I can't tell people what to do around that they have to feel that out for themselves and work out you know to what degree is this impacting my mental health by not placing a boundary when my um, you know parent or caregiver person in my life says this to me or behaves in this way or you know and if the answer is that it's impacting your mental health significantly and that is part of the reason why you're in therapy it it suggests to me that something needs to be done there now again without upsetting the status quo I'm not really sure that's actually possible and I'm not sure that's actually the goal um maybe rather than upsetting the status quo what we're saying is we're changing the parameters under which we relate to these people and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing um but it's hard to do it is hard to do and it's it's the part in therapy where my clients struggle most so behaviorally um is often where people fall down it's difficult so so we can understand the thing we can talk about the thing we can even um you know our emotions come to the fore when we talk about it however when we're asked to then change our behavior that um engenders a whole new emotional response um and it's something that we've never done so it's difficult to um shake off those patterns Um, But I think if you can engage with whoever it is that you need to engage with and be open and transparent about the fact that there is no blame to a portion here. I don't think blame is helpful for anyone doing therapeutic work and that you are simply trying to um, live your life in a way that is healthier for you and that's why it feels important to raise this issue with them. Okay, I hope I hope that's helpful. Um, okay, so question seven is a really kind of broad question, which I love. And that is, what would a relationally trauma-informed society actually look like? And, oh my goodness, like, I'm not sure where to start with this one. Um, what I would say about trauma-informed is that Scotland have been sort of leading the way on this through government policy and initiatives for quite some time now but I I know and I can see that there is so much further that we need to travel in terms of um, being a trauma-informed society and I think what that looks like um, broadly is vulnerability being encouraged much more than it is at the moment. Um, And so that has to cover um, workplaces, schools, hospitals, you know, um, and I'm sure every 
speed of society has more to do in terms of being trauma-informed. Um, but look, let, let me say this about it. If we as individuals have a role to play in what a trauma-informed society would really look like, then what I would encourage people to be doing is thinking at an individual level about every interaction that you have in your day and asking yourself, you know, that person's reaction, how they've behaved, is that because potentially they're dealing with something that we know nothing about? Um, If you are a teacher or um, a manager at work and you're responsible for people, that you're constantly asking questions to be curious around what people are experiencing in their day-to-day because don't forget this um, relational trauma exists in a way that's almost invisible um, to to everyone around us you know it's the things that happen day-to-day that we just become so used to and so I think we have responsibility in our lives to show up and ask the questions of people um, and make sure that we ourselves are um, thinking about how we are um, relating to ourselves as much as anything and our kids right um, and yeah you know I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if I answered that one particularly well but I think it's such a, a broad concept and I think we all have a role and a responsibility to think about how we show up in society to be trauma informed and I'm not sure that we're really there yet Okay, right, next section of the question. So these questions sort of fall under um, generic sort of therapy questions, a little bit about me, and um, yeah, so let's, let's dive into these ones. So question eight, what is the most difficult emotion to help people with in therapy? My God, I love this question. This is such a brilliant question. And the answer for me without hesitation is shame. Shame is such a horrible, intractable emotion to hold on to in our minds and in our bodies. And the reason for that is because by its very nature, we want to hide it. So if you think about like, if you're angry about something, like it's almost socially acceptable to be a bit angry um, and, and sort of show that emotion. Um, obviously to a certain level like no one's you know going to be raging and rampaging around their workplace or whatever and and that'd be socially acceptable really but you know you understand what I mean when I say that like anger is sort of accepted whereas shame is something that nobody speaks about like if you feel shameful about something that you've done or something that's happened to you in your life by its very nature we just want to hide it and so shame silences us and we sit with it and we have all these sort of cognitions and thoughts around it's only me and the only one who's been through this or experienced this or thinks like this. And so by the time people get to therapy and they're um, living with a degree of shame in their in their lives, um, my work is often um, getting them to the point where firstly, they trust me to tell me the thing that they're shameful about. And secondly, to get them to re-script that shame, to um, foster an alternative viewpoint on 
what this is actually all about. Um, And that is not an easy thing to do. And so if you are out there and you're dealing with shame around something, I see you, I know how hard it is. Um, But I do think that the work that you will do on releasing shame is some of the most important work you will ever do in your life. Um, And I really recommend it. Okay, Um, right, number nine. Do you have an interest in psychological theories? What is your favourite and why? (laughs) Right, I'm going to try not to geek out too much um, and just keep this as light as possible. I mean, obviously, um, I'm like three psychology degrees in at this stage and so um, theory is something that you um, obviously are taught and but you know what I'll, what I'll say about theory and why they're important is because we should be able to take the theory and apply it to real life and so the theories that I love are ones that are easily um, implemented in real life like you can see it in action you can see it in people's lives and how that has um, yeah how the impact that that will have so let me give you an example so the first theory I want to talk about is social learning theory um, if anyone's interested, look up Albert Bandura. Um, and so social learning theory is essentially all about the modelling that we see as children and in our lives. And we know that what we see, we often repeat. And that is very much um, a principle that underlines all of the work that I do and my therapeutic um, my therapeutic stance on stuff, you know. Um modeling is hugely important and our children are watching us copying us and modeling all the time and that's why it's often very frustrating when we see our children sort of get to the age that my daughter is now about nine and they're behaving in ways that I'm like oh goodness that's that's me that she's (laughs) emulating or she's behaving in a way that I recognize um in myself um and that that's hard sometimes to see um okay the next theory that is um, many of you will have heard of, I, I'm sure, um, is attachment theory. So again, if you want to Google that and learn a bit more about it, um, John Bowlby is your man. And this theory is um, oh, like just so, um, so important for psychological work because it essentially sets out how we as children learn and grow and develop and attachment theory basically describes our relationships to our early caregivers and how um, that sets the tone for how we will live the rest of our lives and so again this links back to what I spoke about earlier in terms of relational trauma you know if we have been modeled a pattern um, in our attachment relationships that suggests that we should be, um, you know, minimising our own needs, for example, then that sets the tone, you know. So let's say you watch your mum or your dad or someone who looked after you um, never meeting their own needs, then chances are you're going to grow up thinking that that's what you're supposed to do and then you get into your adulthood and you realise somewhere along the line, oh, wait, actually, I'm not meeting my own needs here because it's a pattern that was modelled to me by my attachment caregivers. And so attachment theory explains how um, our relationships 
set the tone for how we live our adult lives. Okay. And so do you see both both of those theories um, are really easily implemented and understandable in terms of how it relates to real life. And so those are the ones that matter to me and matter to my clients. Okay, enough of the theories. <laughs> right, last question. Um, thank you so much for asking this question. And it is, will you do more podcast episodes in the new year? Ah, so I'm not really sure what to say about this other than... Um, Initially, when I started um, the podcast, I had agreed with myself that I would do like one season. I think more and more podcasters are doing seasons and that I would do eight episodes and stop there. And here we are (laughs) on episode 11 and I'm pretty much agreed that I'm taking this to the end of the year, just before Christmas um, is my last episode. So I think I've got something like four more, Oh, which makes me worried about um, how close we are to Christmas. So what I'm going to say about that is that I'm definitely doing another four episodes till Christmas and I need to make some decisions about what my schedule is going to look like come the new year. But look, I, I have loved doing these podcast episodes. Um, one of my biggest um, values in terms of my business is to be able to offer psychological understanding and simplifying psychological ideas for people without... Um, people having to come to therapy you know that there is a an element of what I offer that is freely available to people that you can just download a podcast or um, you know download one of my free guides um, on things like perfectionism or you know whatever whatever that happens to be because I want people to be able to help themselves and self-help for a long time has got a bit of a bad reputation as being a bit beige and a bit bland and I just don't I don't ascribe to that notion I think self-help is hugely important and that people should be empowered to do the work for themselves and sometimes you may need a little bit of additional help from someone like a psychologist or a counsellor but even podcasts I know can be really helpful for people to relate to so yeah has that answered the question (laughs) i'm not really sure if it has but look um watch this space stay tuned and you never know perhaps i'll keep going in 2023 thanks for listening to this episode of know your own psychology if you loved it please share it on facebook or instagram for your friends and family and if you really want to help me out drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.